understand everything, you won't. If we got to heaven and understood everything, God would no longer be God. The only, when we sing, we will never comprehend how much you love us. We literally will never fully comprehend that. When we get to heaven, the only knowledge we will gain is the knowledge of, oh my gosh, we don't know so many things. And now we get to learn that. So I'm going to send the kids back with Miss Caitlin, Miss Kathy. Kate, up to what grade again? Up to fifth grade, they can go back for kids' church with Miss Caitlin. Do whatever you want. So parents are in the front seat of the, the deception of their kids. Uh, we're going to be in Revelation today, book of Revelation, chapter 2, the first letter. A um, couple things. If you, showed up to make, if, if you showed up to make If Gathering go, um, thank you for that. Our worship teams were here Friday night and Saturday. We had hospitality teams setting up. Uh, and it, I thought, was a pretty powerful weekend, and I just got to sit in the booth and wrestle with the live stream. But there were some really awesome things said. We're going to do that again next year, so mark your calendars for that, ladies. Super awesome. And I want to just reiterate what Steph said about that couples conference that we're going to do uh, in April. Um, Bob and Pam McRae both teach at Moody, where we both went to school, and they did our pre-marriage. And we love them. Like, I my heart explodes when I think about how much I love them. Do you know what I mean? And they will be uh, awesome and a blessing to your relationship. So dating, engaged, married. Uh, we've done marriage counseling for a number of you, or pre-marriage counseling, I mean. So be a great, like, refresher. And uh, in that, I mean, I don't want you to come because then you'll realize that everything we told you was derivative, right? Like, we just copied it from them, but, but it'll be really good. So that's in April. Um, this is a sermon this morning that uh, I'm walking with. So last week we saw Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth and talked about how it's a dagger. He has to get close. Uh, Jesus has been all up in my business with this text this week. Uh, and, and so I just want to bring this to you as I am not a perfect example, but I am a living example, right? Uh, I'm seeing the challenge of this text in my heart too. And so pray with me and for me as we go through this. But we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Um, we've all lost things along the way. We all lose things along the way. It happens. I, 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 I don't know if you know this, but it's mid-February, which means all of you that made New Year's resolutions have probably quit them, right? Um, those of you that decided to read the whole Bible through in a year are now somewhere in the doldrums of Leviticus and Numbers. Uh, may God bless you and keep you and may your tribe increase, right? And uh, um, it, we, we have these grand ideas that get lost along the way. I, I was in our bedroom the other day and I noticed around the light switch, there's a few scratches in the paint where you can see kind of the, frankly, ugly blue color that our ba- bedroom was when we moved in before we repainted it. And, and it reminded me that I have been meaning to touch up about a dozen areas in our house that just need a little touch-up of paint. I've been meaning to do that for about two and a half years. Uh, we moved in August of 2015. I've still yet to, like, get the can out. I mean, it's going to take five seconds, right? And it's not because we, we lose things along the way all the time. And it's not because we're lazy. It's not because we're careless, at least not most of the time. It's just that we get busy, stuff happens, we get distracted, and before you know it, it's going to be Christmas again, and the 25 pounds that you wanted to lose this year is the 25 pounds that you gained. We all lose things, and some things that we lose are more valuable than others. There are things that are more dangerous to lose than others. And today, as we look at the first of seven letters, Jesus, through John, writes to seven churches uh, in, in what we now know as Turkey, he's writing to a church that lost something of vital importance somewhere along the way. But I want to start this morning with what they had before they lost it. Um, Revelation, if you missed last week, here's the, 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 the 
the fast version of this, Revelation is not about America winning in the end times. Uh, Revelation is not about a secret code that helps us figure out who the Antichrist is. Revelation is not a decoder ring. Revelation is a, a work of apocalyptic literature, not apocaly- Apostolicus Honda, apocalyptic literature, right? I, I, made, I should not have said that out loud, out loud last week because it's just in there. Um, and apocalypsis, the kind of literature that we're reading, simply means unveiling or uncovering. John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, Jesus' best friend, writes this, this, this work of literature that's trying to help us understand that at its core, things are not as they seem. That no matter what our circumstances are, no matter how hard, no matter how good, no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what our reality is, there, there's a deeper, truer reality underneath it and beneath it all in which Jesus is ruling and reigning and resurrected and alive in the midst of it. John is on the island of Patmos. I actually have a cute little map here. Um, He's exiled on the island of Patmos and while he's worshiping on the Lord's Day, Sunday morning, he gets a vision of this Jesus ruling and reigning. And what he sees is an uncovering, an unveiling, a revealing of this powerful, mighty Jesus in the midst of history, in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our lives with bronze feet so secure and a loud voice that speaks truth to us. John is writing seven letters to seven literal, actual, historical churches in in Turkey. This is a map of that. So you see the seven churches that John is writing to. The the little black dot is the island of Patmos where John is. And the first letter he writes is to a church in Ephesus. We're going to look at each of these letters in turn as we journey toward Easter. And I want us to remember that these letters are not written to us, but they are written for us. So it's to seven literal actual churches, but that number seven is symbolic. It's metaphorical. Um, it's literal in the way that you and I use the word literally, which means not literally. Um, uh, we, we, it, it's written to every church everywhere across all time. There are words in here for us, for us, the people of Jesus called regeneration today. Let me tell you a little bit about the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is a major coastal town in Turkey and if we could travel back in time, we would see uh, all of like the glory and splendor of Greco-Roman life laid out before us in the city of Ephesus. city of Ephesus is a port city, which means that its banks are full of gold that they're raking in off of trade as ships from all over the Mediterranean dock there. Uh, it, 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 is, uh, it is the home of what are called the Pan-Ionian Games which are second only to the Olympic Games, which are taking place at this time in history in Athens. Uh, The city of Ephesus at this point in history, like in the first century AD, had had an amphitheater that could sit 24,000 people. Uh, So it's a center of art and culture. It's a center of religion. It's a home to the temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, She is the goddess of the hunt, but she's also the goddess of sexuality. Statues of Artemis, like she's kind of strange and lusty looking. Um, She's the goddess of the hunt. She's the embodiment of sexuality. Ephesus is a significant city in the worship of the Roman emperor. Uh, The the Roman emperor, there were four temples to the Roman emperor in the city of Ephesus. They, They were awarded the honor of building these temples 
four times in their history. Ephesus is a super significant city at this point in history, culturally, artistically, religiously, politically, uh, economically, and it's in this city that Paul the Apostle plants one of the most important and vibrant churches of his career. Paul plants a church in Ephesus on purpose. It's a port city. It's full of people from every nation. From this one place, there is a springboard of other churches, and the church in Ephesus quickly becomes influential within the early church. And it's so influential because it, it, is, it, is, um, it is led by all stars of the early church. Uh, so when Paul plants it, he leaves and he comes back a couple of years, he comes back and stays for two or three years and pastors this church. Paul has to leave the town because um, he is chased out. He is chased out of the city by silversmiths, not Will Smiths, uh, but silversmiths. Um, uh, what happens is all of these silversmiths who make little statues to the temple, to the goddess Artemis, um, they're losing all this money because so many people are becoming Christians. And so they have a riot and they chase Paul out of town. When was the last time Christianity caused uh, like financial upheaval in a city? Answer, never, right? And so he's chased out of town and he has to send other people to lead it. So he sends uh, Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife team. Priscilla, by the way, a woman, leading a key church in the early church. Okay, big deal. Priscilla and Aquila go. After Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, a guy named Apollos, pastors it for a little while. And then, then, then Paul sends his protege, his mentee named Timothy, and Timothy pastors it. If you have ever read the book of First Timothy in the New Testament, that letter is written to Timothy while he pastors the church in Ephesus. Uh, Timothy gets in some trouble, and church history says that Timothy was killed by the Romans. And so after Timothy dies, John, who is writing the book of Revelation, who is writing the gospel of John, the beloved disciple John, goes and and pastors this church. And to boot, he brings with him Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's like, let's get Mary, the mother of Jesus on the worship team. You know what I mean? Like, this is like a big deal. Um, I bet she makes really good crepes. You know what I mean? For the breakfast. Um, And so here's this super influential church it's, and aside from its strategic position in the Mediterranean, apart from remarkable leadership, like I was at, well, there's actually one, if you look in this hallway, these are the pastors of all the church, all the pastors that Otterbein, this church has had. So imagine though, if the picture was like Paul, Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, Timothy, John, and then you would like have to be the guy after that's like, hey, what's up, right? Not cool. I mean, they've had really excellent leadership. John Stott, who's a, a pastor and an author, talks about the church in Ephesus, and he says that they are energetic in their service, patient in their suffering, and orthodox in their faith. And he gets this from verses uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 2. It says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And we'll talk about in one of the letters, what does the angel mean? Does it literally mean that every church is assigned an angel? If it does mean that, we need to stop being so casual about church. It's a little scary. Is there an angel of the church regeneration? Uh, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Jesus says, I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Jesus has really remarkably high praise 
for this church. And, and look how Jesus knows what he knows. The verbs say, I know, I saw, I know. Jesus isn't just like reading like an annual report. Jesus is up close and personally acquainted with what is happening. He's going to worship. He's sitting in their Bible studies. He's, he's sitting as they're eat, at the table when they're eating dinner together. Jesus is intimately acquainted with what is going on in this church because he is the one who walks among the seven lampstands. The seven lampstands represent the churches. Jesus isn't looking on, friends, listen, Jesus doesn't look on what we do as a church from above or from far away. He is in the room with us. He is in the room with us, and that gives him an intimate uh, awareness of what is happening in our church. It gives him an intimate awareness of what is happening in the church of Ephesus, and with that intimate awareness of what is happening in the church in Ephesus, he says these words, I have this complaint against you. He just praised them. I mean, said, in, in comparison to some of the other letters in Revelation, really awesome things about the church in Ephesians, uh, the church in Ephesus. And yet he says, I have this complaint against you. My dad is the VP of support services for Mercy Health. So all of the hospitals in the valley that say Mercy Health and all of those offices and all the things, my dad oversees that. He's the VP of support services. So anytime they build something new, that's him. And they built that new Howland Medical Center on 46, kind of behind the urgent care there. It's this big building. And um, when, when it was done and before it opened, my dad invited Steph and I to go walk through it. So we went on a tour. And guys, it's beautiful. And just to shout out to my stepmom does all the interiors. So like Saney's Boardman, if you think that's pretty, like that's my stepmom. Like that's their kind of my, my parents' handiwork, which I think is actually pretty cool. And... Um, so we're walking through this, and it is gorgeous, and everything has a place, and I'm thinking, man, this is a place that makes you, I want to come here so I can get better, and I'm not even sick, you know, is what I'm thinking as I'm walking through. And my dad's taking us on a tour, and we walk into a room, and he pulls out of his suit jacket a little stack of unlined three-by-five note cards that are held together by a teeny-tiny binder clip. He's so funny. And um, he takes out his pen, and he looks at something, and he scribbles something down, and he looks at me as if to say, Somebody is in trouble. And uh, I'm thinking, I, can't, I don't see a problem. Everything looks fine. We go into it. We, we keep on the tour. And again, he pulls out the pad and he scribbles something down. And I'm like, ooh, somebody's going to have a bad day. You know? And, and, and he gets his justice. I mean, people, you know, like, we'll go into the hospital sometimes if I'm visiting somebody at, and where his office is. And I'll be like, hey, is Wayne Tennant in? And they're always like, Why? You know, like, because they sometimes look at me, like, they, he, they, people live in fear of him. Sometimes they look at me with this, like, face of, like, oh, my God, he spawned, right? Like, uh, like there's more of them. And uh, he, uh, so he gets his just desserts, though, because there's this internet, this, this national, like, accrediting thing called the Joint Commission kind of comes in. And they'll send him a note that says, like, we'll be here anytime over the next six weeks. And he is a stress burrito that whole time, right? Because he knows that they're going to come in and see the same things. I walked into that hospital. I didn't see anything wrong. My dad walked in and saw all sorts of problems. And we look at the church in Ephesus and we think like, Jesus, what's the big deal? Like energetic in their service, orthodox in their faith. I mean, they really care. But Jesus walks among the seven landstamps, walks into the, into the church in Ephesus, just like my dad walked into that hospital. And he, he sees where things are wrong. He sees where things have gone awry, and, and as he does, he says, I have a complaint. And, and Jesus diagnoses the complaint pretty seriously. He says, I have this complaint, and the complaint is, um, you do not love me 
or each other as you did at first. This is the NLT, which is what I print out, print out, preach out of all the time. The NIV gets it a little stronger. It says, you have lost your first love. ESV says, you have abandoned, you have abandoned your first love. You have abandoned your first love. I want us to get a sense of what this means because it doesn't just mean like, ah, people don't sing very loud in worship or not a lot of people participate in service projects or there's not a lot of people in small groups. That doesn't what those mean. Those are the equivalent of a, of a flu or a cold. What, what, what Jesus is diagnosing to help us get the seriousness of this is, is cancer. This is multiple sclerosis. This is a significant problem in the body that threatens to kill it. They, as a, a group have lost their first love. And so it probably would be incumbent upon us to understand what it means to lose your first love, what it looks like to have your first love. If you want to know what having your first love is like, uh, find somebody that you know that's in a loveless marriage. And I'm not trying to make jokes or poke at them, but I'm just saying that people that are kind of in these marriages, that they're still married and they're still together, but the duties of marriage are ongoing and, and, and the passion and the affection is gone. Um, everything kind of devolves into solemn duty and grim-faced commitment, and there's no more giggling, there's no more joy. And, and listen, like, I know plenty of couples that have been married 50 or 60 years that are still flirty, and honestly, it's actually kind of gross. Um, like, I, that's the bonus of Grace Campus. There's a lot of people that have been married 50, 60 years and have, like, wonderful, beautiful affectionate marriages that I want to have, but it still kind of is a little like, oh, it's kind of like my parents flirting, like, oh, like, you know, like, oh, um, and, you know, on the other hand of this, like, what's your first love look like? Well, this is a fun story. So the other day I come into Nova and Steph is already at Nova, by the way, if you're new at Regen, the only thing you need to know that really matters to us is Nova Coffee Company and Jesus. So like Jesus and Nova Coffee Company, sorry, let's just, um, it's a big thing. Like I walk in there and there's somebody from Regen almost every time and it's super fun. So I walk into Nova, Steph's having a one-on-one with somebody at Nova and the person that's with her says like, you still get all fluttery when he walks in the room. And, and we've been married well, six years this June. And she was like, you still get all like fluttery. And, and Steph was like, wow, I, I guess I do. In contrast to that, on, around our first anniversary, my grandpa asked me, my grandpa asked me, so when do you think the shine wears off? And I was like, um, <laughs> uh, we'll let you know when it happens, I think is what we told him. When does the shine wear off? We, we, what happens when our first love goes away is the shine wears off. And it becomes loveless. And, and losing your first love means that you engage in the activities of godliness and Christianity. You engage in the activities of godliness with, without the passion or the power. And here's the truth of the matter. Churches are really, really good at quenching first love. Churches are really good. And let me, let me tell you how they do this. And this is something we protect against all the time. Like even when we were doing this egg hunt, my first thought was, is this just busyness? Like are we being busy? Because I don't want to do that. When we do things, I don't want it to be busy. And here's why. Like when some of you have just like recently stepped across the line of faith and it is the most fun thing about my life right now because um, you are just so overwhelmed by the love of Jesus and so floored by his affection for you. And you're so earnest and wanting to honor him and please him. And so you're texting me late at night like, questions about the Bible that I don't know the answer to, so I have to go look up, so I still look smart, and, um, and, 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 and you're like wanting, you're just telling all people like that are new in their faith, they're just telling people about Jesus, and it's probably awkward and even inappropriate, but you can't help it, right, because you just found this, and you need everybody else to know, really people that 
just stepped across the line of faith, new Christians, they're just like puppies, right? Like, like they're super excited and slobbery and their, their paws are too big for their bodies. So they keep knocking into stuff, and, but they're learning and they're growing. But here's the thing, puppies pee on the carpet and churches don't like that. Churches don't like mess. And so we get you into a small group and we get you into a Sunday school class and we get you on a team and, and, we, and, then, and then if we really want to just douse that fire, here's what we do. We put you in a meeting. Oh, and uh, we put you in a meeting and, and we start talking details and, and, un, and, and soon we just drown your passion for Jesus in this constant flood of Christian busyness and suddenly your faith that was so passionate and, and, and boundless and energetic becomes tame and simplistic and complacent and apathetic and just checking off the boxes. This is why we don't have a lot of meetings. Uh, this is why we, 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 I don't want you busy because the other thing that happens is you get so busy doing Christian things, you're no longer in contact with Christians, any, with your non-Christian friends and family anymore. And the one thing that we need to make sure that we're doing is caring for the person that's not here yet. Thanks, Luke. He's with me. And yes, amen. Um, and John says, well, Jesus through John says to this church, you've lost your first love. He says, you've lost your first love. It's been quenched. I think this is a really fitting letter to walk into Revelation, uh, excuse me, Lent with. Lent, we're kind of entering this season of repentance and preparation for Easter. And I don't know if you noticed this yet, but the church calendar creates two seasons of preparations for our biggest holidays. Four weeks for Christmas, six weeks for Easter. And that's because actually Easter is more important than Christmas. Uh, it's nice that he was born. It's even better that he's still alive. And, and so this season of preparation is what we call Lent. But a lot of us associate Lent with our coworker that's like, I'm giving up chocolate but has like a secret drawer of Hershey Kisses just in case, you know, because that's hard. It's a lot to ask. Uh, Lent actually, super funny, began in the early decades after Jesus' resurrection, and its primary purpose was to weed out spies. So the Roman government was kind of opposing Christianity, and so they would plant, they would, make, they would put plants in churches to kind of figure out what was going on, and it kind of arose out of this practice of, you know what will weed these people out? 40 whole days of fasting and Bible study and catechism. Man, we will, you know, and, and, and they're like, oh, I'll spy. And then they're like, you can't eat anything every Friday. And they're like, I'm out, right? That would be me. I'm like, I'm done, not in. And so, um, and, and it becomes this school of discipleship. And actually, it was always right before Easter because you'd spend 40 days. And then if you went all the way through Lent and your bishop said, yes, you're, you're welcome into the fold, um, you were baptized. And fun fact, you were baptized naked. So the baptismal pool was in the ground, so you would take off a dark robe that you were wearing. You would step down into the water that was like a grave. It was buried into the ground. You would be dunked three times in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And then, I actually forgot to say this last service, you were poured over three times too. And then you came out naked and put on a white robe because we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Super interesting, right? And that's where Lent comes from. Lent, in Lent, here's what happens. In Lent, we discover all of the ways that our first love as people is crowded out. In Lent, we like take stock of the ways our first and true love has been crowded out often by good things, sometimes without really meaning to, but that we, we get distracted. We are all attention deficit disciples. We all have ADD in that way. And so we're distracted by all of these good things. And so we make room in our hearts for God by fasting. This is where the fasting practice of Lent comes from. And yes, it means giving up chocolate, but it's ultimately giving up something that you love 
so that when you crave that thing, you are reminded in that moment that how my body feels about this thing I've given up is how my soul has felt since I was born. That's what fasting is about. Fasting is not a convenient way to lose weight, although I think it'll do that. Spiritual fasting, fasting in the presence of Jesus, cultivates a hunger for God. It helps us get back in touch with our first love. So when we give up late night Netflix binging or when we give up wine or, or beer or, God forbid, cheese, um, you, you, find, you find that as you crave those things, you, you can, you're, you're entering into this discipline of saying, how my body feels is how my soul has felt since the moment I emerged from the womb and even before. And, and so we... we give things up, not to lose weight, not to be impressive, but we give things up to create room in our hearts for God. This is why, you know, we sing joy to the world. That line says, let every heart prepare him room. We should probably sing that all year. We all need to do that. But sometimes it's good not only to put things off, it's good to take things on. So this is why we're like offering this devotional that we're going to read together. There's the photo a day thing, because in that space you create, as you create that hunger, it's okay to feed that hunger right? And so we, we feed that hunger spiritually, spending extra time in scripture or, or, or what have you. And, and here's the bonus. So, and, and this is kind of a built-in way to act out this sermon, okay? If you're wondering that you've lost touch with your first love, fast this Lent. Fast from something this Lent. Enter into that. If you're wondering if you've lost touch with your first love, pick up that devotional and, and engage with that content, and here's, here's the bonus. Steph mentioned that there's no reading in that devotional on Sundays. Okay, this is not just like a get out of jail free card or like you passed go collect $200 on Sunday kind of thing. The early church taught and believed that every Sunday was a little Easter. Every Sunday was a little Easter. And Jesus says you do not fast when the bridegroom is present. And so on Sunday, if you gave up the chocolate, go to town. Um, if on, on Sunday, if you gave up the wine, drink responsibly, my friends. Um, Seriously, because we're celebrating the resurrection of Christ really every Sunday. And so that otherwise then Lent also becomes 47 days. You miss out on the spiritual significance, 40 being a spiritually significant number. We give things up to make room in our heart for God, which is, gets to the heart of what Jesus says in verse 4 and 5. Jesus says, I have this complaint against you. You, do not, you don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works that you did at first. And if you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Jesus tells us what feels like bad news. Jesus says, repent. Repent, the Greek word is metanoia. It means to change your mind, to change your ways. Uh, to, to repent is to lay down the things that are distracting us from our first love. To repent is to lay down even the good things that distract us, the things that crowd out and drown out and quench our first love. But the good news of this text is that he gives us a way back. The letter does not end with, You've, you don't love me as much as you did at first, so screw you, I'm moving on. The letter actually says, um, you don't love me or each other as you did at first. Repent, turn back to me, and go back to the ways that you did at first. And, and that's the core. Like if you're hearing the sermon and you're saying, I've lost touch with my first love, the way that you get back isn't even to do, it says do the things that you did at first. This sounds misleading. It's not referring to what we did at first, it's referring to why we did it. It's not referring to what we did, but why we did it. It's returning to that passion, that excitement, 
And not that it's about drumming up emotions, but it's about returning to this hunger and this place where we long for God, that we desire to know him more. And yes, that might look like some of the same old practices of being in scripture, some of the same old practices of singing the songs, but sometimes we need to go back to the why of what we did. Jesus wants us to fan that first love into flame, to stoke that passion. And we do that not by going back to what we did or how we did it or about why we did it in the first place. Our why, our passion to experience more of Jesus, our desire for our friend and family and neighbors to know him, our desire to see kingdom justice in our communities, is that our, our, our why gets crowded out by the what and the how. And this is why meetings kill that passion. Because we spend 58, of a 60, 58 minutes of a 60-minute meeting talking about how and why and when and where. And by the way, these are very important questions. Or how and what and when and where. But we never give attention to the why. And pretty soon we evolve into this practice where we assume that Jesus is present. We assume that Jesus is good with it. And before you know it, we, we wake up one day to see what Jesus thinks about this thing that we're doing. And we left him behind weeks, months, years ago. This is how churches lose their first love. They assume, they assume the presence of Jesus. Their passion, the passion gets crowded out by our sin and the ways that we look more like the world than our Father, but also when we get doing busy stuff for Jesus without ever doing them with him. This is why when we do this egg hunt, we're going to do an egg hunt that on the surface looks like every other egg hunt will be drastically different than every other egg hunt. Because there's going to be something that we're trying to stir up inside of us through that. More on that later. So I don't know how this connects. It's going to segue a little bit, but I felt pretty strongly because a lot of us are kind of just kind of taking baby steps spiritually and I want to help us out because some of you are freaking out right now, right? You're hearing this. Oh my gosh, I have lost my first love. I got to double down. I got to work harder. I should be praying more. I should be reading, reading my Bible more. Like I should be sharing my faith with my friends more. Like I should, I should be doing, listen, we should all be doing more things. I don't want you doing anything this morning that God isn't asking you to do. So is he really saying, read your Bible more? If so, do that. But is he saying something else? Then do that thing. Right? I don't want us going to this shame place, number one. I also don't want you going to this place of, I've lost my first love. I must have lost my salvation. Like whatever this thing that Jesus gave me, it's gone. And now I'm screwed because I, I lost my first love. Hear me on this. Jesus says, every single one that the Father puts in my hand, I will never lose. And if you're over here thinking, I might have lost my salvation, I don't know. Hear me on this. The only people that worry about losing their salvation are people that are saved. Your non-Christian friends don't give a lick if they're saved or not. If you are kind of feeling fretful, if you're feeling like I need to be doing more, that's a good sign that you are in touch with your first love. Another good sign that you are in touch with your first love is, is something that Paul gets to the heart of in Romans chapter 7. Um, he says, I've discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And a few verses later, Paul says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's what I don't want, again, some of you thinking is, man, I've got some sin in my life that I'm really battling. I've got some habits that I'm really battling on a regular basis. That's probably a sign that I've lost my first love. It's not. 
The sign that someone has lost their first love is that an inner battle between their flesh and their spirit, an inner battle between their better selves in Christ and their sin is not even on their radar. If you don't care, if this is a pitch that you are just letting swing you by, that is the sign that you've lost your first love. If you're just here and you're checking the box and we're going to go home and we're going to be done, you've lost your first love. But if you are sitting here this morning and going, man, I see in myself a tendency to believe that I am unsafe and therefore I am anxious all the time. And I have to pray and declare over myself that I I am safe and secure in the eyes and in the hands of the Father. Man, that is a sign that you are in touch with your first love. If there's a part of you that is battling against pornography or or sex addiction or gossip or anger or wrathfulness or any of these things, like that is a sign that you are actually in touch with your first love. Because you're trying to give your first love more room inside of you. If you don't care, if this is boring to you, the real question is, have you even found the love that John is warning you can lose? If you are struggling today, I want to remind you that Paul says in Philippians that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And somebody at If Gathering this weekend said, he began a work and it really is a good work. It really is good And he'll finish it. You have to participate in that fear and trembling that he talks about later on in Philippians. But I want to look at how Jesus ends this letter. Turn back to me. Do the works that you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. This is in your favor, though. You hate the evil deed of the Nicolaitans just as I do. The Nicolaitans were false teachers. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give the fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. We will look at how the word victory for John is almost synonymous with the word for faith in how he uses it. But we'll do that in another letter. Jesus makes a pretty stiff statement. He says, if you don't repent, I will remove your lampstand. Now listen. He is now returning from him speaking to individuals to him speaking corporately. Individually, he will not remove a gift that he has given you. Corporately, he operates in another direction. Understand that? So it sounds like Jesus said, I'll remove my lampstand. It means, it sounds like you, Kyle, you just contradicted yourself. that You said he won't take me, I, he won't lose me, I'm in his hand. Here's, here's what I want to say. What he does for you individually and how he behaves towards us corporately, there are times where there is a distinction and this is one of them. And the distinction is that he removes the lampstand of the church of Ephesus. He says, if you do not repent, I will remove your lampstand from the churches. By AD 200, about 150 years after this church has started, the church in Ephesus disappears from the historical record. Led by heavy hitters, great preaching, passionate worship, and they were doing community outreach left and right, and yet by 8200, it's gone. Which is a fair reminder for us at the beginning of our journey that in every moment we are, play, we are playing with live ammo. That the way that we speak about each other privately to some other people, the way that we speak to one another, the decisions that we make as a church of what kind of culture that we're going to have, the way that we handle disagreement and frustration and disappointment, 
the way that we celebrate victory, the way that we prioritize the next person in the room is the, ne- is the person that he- it matters most, the way that we prioritize Jesus' subject, the way that we handle one another's sin tenderly, the way that we make disciples one another, all of this stuff right now, we're playing with live ammo. We are playing with live ammo. What we say matters. What we do matters because here's a church that heard these words and evidently they did not repent. And so the light of their lamp, and it's almost like he's talking about the light of their witness in the community. Listen, Jesus is always going to accomplish what he needs to accomplish in the world. He is only, there's an element to which, I'm going to say this out loud and see if I agree with it. There is an element to which that he is only as committed to us as an organization as we are committed to him. Churches close all the time. A church in our system this summer was announced it closed because they were known for their their bake sales, their rummage sales. It does not sound like a church to me anymore. We have to remain committed to that up in and out lifestyle. We have to remain especially intentional about that pursuit of up because and the in and the out. All of these relationships matter because the degree to which we engage in those well and in a Christ-like manner and, and the power of the Holy Spirit is the degree to which he brightens even the light of our lampstand and expands our influence. But we are playing with live ammo. And if we lose our first love, we might exist for a while, but we'll mostly be a club that pat each other on each other on the back and give each other a good game pat on the butt on the way out, metaphorically, not literally, because there's lawsuits there. But that church disappeared because they were playing with live ammo. Our choices corporately and how those are carried out individually matter. They matter. We're not playing. If you, if you want to flip to John 21 with me. I preached this text a, a couple months ago or last year, and I was kind of drawn to it. Jesus is resurrected, and he goes to visit the disciples and, and praise the Lord. He makes them breakfast. I don't know if you know that. Makes them, it's not waffles, it's fish. We'll let them go this time. But in the words of Ron Swanson, you know, why would anybody eat anybody else anything but breakfast food? Because people are idiots, Leslie. You know what I mean? We're, Jesus makes some breakfast food. And it says, verse 15 of John chapter 21. Now, he says, he says after breakfast, again, PTL, uh, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon, Simon Peter has just denied Jesus three times publicly. He's always been a little unruly, more puppy-like than not. He says, do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says, then feed my lambs. John, it says, Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. And a third time, Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus is not asking, Jesus doesn't ask this question three times because Jesus doesn't know the answer to the question. He asks it three times because Peter doesn't know the answer to the question. In fact, Peter doesn't even know the question. And the question that Jesus has for you and I this morning is not, have you worked really hard? Are you going to serve more? Are you going to pray more? Are you going to do more things? His first and only question is, do you love me? What he did, he doesn't ask him what he did. The reason that Jesus doesn't ask what he did is because actions inevitably follow our affections. 
And so he's not worried about what did you do. If, if Jesus, if Peter's clear on his love for the Lord, everything else will follow. He says, do you love me? And he asks him three times, because it takes three times to cut through the noise and the other lesser loves, to cut through the religion and the failure, to get to the only question that Jesus has. The only question is, do you love me? Do you love me? And the only answer that Jesus is looking for is this really honest, passionate, humble yes. Let's pray. God, we just name all the ways that we have um, lived outside the bounds. And uh, God, we pray that you would restore our first love. God, for those things that distract us, they're good. It's the relationships with our girlfriends and our boyfriends and the boyfriends or the girlfriends or the spouses that we wish we had or the babies that we wish we had or the all of these things that we're waiting for or the, the job that we want or the happiness that we crave. But all of these things, God, are less than you and need to be ordered by our love for you. And so, God, we do say, yes, we love you today. And even though we fail, we're so glad that the body and blood of Jesus washes over the ways that we have failed this week and leaves us free to say yes again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, this is why we, we come back to this meal every week. Is because we need reminded, we need a way back to our, to our first love. We need a way back to this place. It reminds us as we eat and drink that we are ultimately hungry for God. It, it reminds us that we are nourished even in our failure. It reminds us that, it reminds us of, to remember that song we just sang, we'll never comprehend how far you'll go. It reminds us of just how far he went, that he was broken for us. It reminds us that, having some technical difficulties, it reminds us that he poured himself out for us, that he emptied himself, that he went that far. And so he invites us every week back to this table, regardless of the week that we've had, regardless of the ways that we have lost touch with our first love, he invites us back. He invites us back to this place. And, and he invites everyone, which is why it's our practice as a community that if you have a pulse, you are welcome to Jesus's table. If you are breathing, this is for you. Because Jesus gave himself for the whole world that we might know him that others might know him. And so the way that we'll do this uh, this morning is um, we'll, you, we'll pray, the table will be open, you can come forward, we'll say that you can take, we'll rip off a piece of the bread. It's like I've never said this before, hang on. We'll rip off a piece of the bread, we'll hand it to you, you'll dip it in the cup and as if it were a nacho, taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, our, our, our desire would be that if you drop your little buddy in the juice, we'll get you a fresh one, okay? And, uh, and that you taste and see that the Lord is good. So um, how about um, Zachary um, and um, actually, yeah, Zachary and Sarah. No, you're good. Go away. Yeah. <laughs> that would be rough, right? Um, and uh, Steph, would you come? You're going to be juice, so you're fine. Zach, you're going to be bread because your hands are now clean. And so we pray, Father, that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup, that they might become for us the body and blood of Christ. 
that in the eating and drinking of them, we might be the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood, united in ministry to all the world. And as we eat and drink today, Father, would you remind us of our first love, of of your grace toward us, and would you woo us back? It is your kindness that leads us to repentance. It is your kindness that you lead with, and so lead with that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The table is open. Well, uh, thank you for being with us today. It's always like a deep honor to me that you would share part of your Sunday with us. Um, Hey, if you can, please stick around. We're going to pack some Valentine's bags. Uh, This is seriously one of the coolest things that we do all year. So uh, we'll be in the room with the black tablecloths and Lindsay will kind of give you some instruction when you get in there. Um, Steph has the books, but yeah, we'll be across the hall and uh, excited to have you guys. Love you. Bye.